otherwise. When we look at Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 37, let's begin by reading uh, the passage together. Very similar, we'll see, to what we read from Matthew earlier. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour out into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. What's being measured here? Judgment. Judgment. He also spoke to them a parable. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye, and and you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. For there is no good tree that produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man out of the treasure, the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. The word of the Lord. This is just one of the most recognizable, oft-quoted verses, uh, parables of Jesus. Get the log out of your own eye, right? How often do we not hear that from our parents, uh, from those around us? And just the immense wisdom that is conveyed in this, in this divine principle, the wisdom of God, uh, the, it is so universal. The wisdom here is so universal, it, it can be applied to nearly every facet of our lives. It's amazing. It's practical to finances. Uh, you can use it in relationships, even on your diet, right? If you're going to advise someone else, you might as well take that advice yourself first. Such is, such is the Holy Word of God. It, it, it's living and active, folks. No other source of wisdom that exists in the world even, even comes close in comparison to, to the Word of God and what Jesus speaks. And when I was first looking at this passage, I had to ask myself, I began asking, so... These verses 37 and 38, does Luke tie them more closely to the preceding verses, the verses before it, the previous context to enemies that we looked at last week, or does this initiate a new train of thought, a new topic for Luke? Uh, Because like the golden rule, uh, this, this... this topic of against hypocrisy, this principle against hypocrisy, it stands true in everything. It's, it's universal. I shouldn't judge my enemy if it were in the preceding context. I shouldn't, shouldn't judge him until I've taken a good long look at myself, at that rascal in the mirror in the morning, right? The first one I should look at closely. The moral principle of not judging 
But first getting the log out of your own eye, that's, it universally applies to everything. And that's created an, an issue with recognizing the primary warning contained in this tent, text. It's almost become too familiar. The world, uh, followed closely by liberal theology, they get along well. The world and liberal, liberal theology, they're, they're close to one another. And, and they have turned this into a purely moral lesson. Purely moral, and it, is, it should be to us a moral lesson. But they've turned it strictly into a moral lesson. Um, but we also mustn't overlook the primary purpose and application of this text. I discovered while observing Matthew chapter 7, as we read earlier, that the command in verse 37 and 38 of Luke, to not judge, it's theologically connected to verses 39 and 45. The following context. Find that out because Matthew also says, Judge not lest ye be judged. And Matthew follows up the same statement with the parable about the speck and the log. And then also goes on to uh, warning us to remember to recognize the false teachers. Yet Matthew makes no, no reference to the enemies beforehand. Where Matthew writes, if you understand what I'm saying, the preceding context in Luke doesn't exist in Matthew. So Matthew doesn't find it real important to tie it into the context of enemies. It's more important, though though it applies to enemies, it's more important to tie this judge not lest ye be judged into the following context, which is talking about uh, recognizing them by their fruit. Both Matthew and Luke do that. You follow me? Matthew insists Jesus is primarily concerned with us recognizing false teachers. He says, you will know them by their fruits, right? Them. Who's the, the, the them? You'll see in your, in your handout that I put that in all capital letters because we know, need to know who the them are. You'll know them by their fruits. It, it's the same with Luke. He says too, we are to beware of false teachers. But both writers, as they are guided by the Holy Spirit, supply us with a stern warning before we do. They both say, don't judge hypocritically. I anticipate everybody here already knows that on this occasion, Jesus is not forbidding all types of judgment, right? He's not saying you can never judge anything or anyone. I'm not even going to go into that today. You're intelligent people. You can read for yourselves, you've already seen it. He's not saying that. Because right after, after saying, judge not lest ye be judged, he says, beware the false teachers. Both of them do. It, 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 it's not a prohibition against judging ever. Throughout the Bible, there are warnings uh, cautioning us to discern, to judge, to beware, and, and even to categorize behavior as to whether it is evil or whether it is good. There's a whole lot of judging going on in the Bible. We're commanded to. That which is destructive and ungodly, we're to recognize. And the the example right in this very passage warns us about false teachers. Matthew implores us twice with the phrase, you will know them by their fruits. Them. We will judge them, but not before we judge ourselves look with me at verse 37 do not judge and you will not be judged and do not condemn and you will not be condemned pardon 
and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They, notice it doesn't say God, they will pour into your lap good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over. They're going to reciprocate. For by your standard, by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. The the they in verse 38 describes those whom we're judging. It says they're going to gladly and happily reciprocate, right? So you better have your house in order if you're going to go out and start uh, uh, accusing others of not following the Bible. Recognize that you might come under scrutiny yourself. Matthew records Jesus phrasing it also in this way. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured back to you. Right? The question poised by this is, folks, do you employ any grace when you assess others? Any grace at all when you, when you are evaluating others? Or, or, or is the H word, is H word the first, is that your default word for everybody who disagrees with you a little bit? Your default classification for anyone who, who disagrees with me just a little bit, they're automatically what? Heretic, right? Really. He or she is automatically a heretic. Folks, I firmly disagree with the late R.C. Sproul on a couple things. I, I, I partly disagree with, with, with the late and, and, and great evangelist Billy Graham on, on, on a couple things. That doesn't mean they're heretics. I don't possess the authority to condemn such people. And after... Uh, assessing their spiritual fruits throughout their lifetime, what they've produced in their lives. My impression uh, that they are both right now receiving a hearty, uh, uh, well-done, good and faithful servant by Jesus himself. They're probably both standing in the line to receive the big crowns. Most of us hope to get maybe a little crown, right? They served well. I disagreed with them on different things. Peripheral things. Uh, They were men, folks, they were Christian men as far as what we can evaluate, not knowing anyone else's heart. But they were men who were for us and not against us. You need to be able to tell the difference. You follow me? In his book, it's titled, He is Not Silent. I'll recommend that. The Reverend Albert Moeller suggests there are three levels of doctrine uh, that are helpful to us in understanding this principle. He calls them first order, second order, and third order doctrines. He classifies in general categories doctrines. I label them, I like to refer to them as primary, secondary, and tertiary. All right? For a second and third level. Primary would be those doctrines that are essential to salvation. Every Christian has to get that right. The eternality and the deity of Jesus Christ 
cannot be compromised. The virgin birth, the miraculous uh, conception conceived by the Holy Spirit cannot be, cannot be dismissed whatsoever. That's primary doctrine, first order doctrine. Every Christian, any true Christian uh, believes in those. Secondary, those are the doctrines essential to maintaining harmony in the local church. We need to get along on these. They're secondary doctrines. Um, believer baptism would be one for us that we hold pretty strongly to. If you're going to become a member of this church, you're, you're going to believe in believer's baptism. You're going to embrace that as the proper understanding of God's Word. Other churches, it's not as, as laid out. With R.C. Sproul, it was different. He looked through a different lens at the Bible. Not a non-Christian lens, but a different lens. Um, views on eschatology, the end times, the millennial kingdom of God. These are things that we need to remain in harmony on in our church. Other churches that, are, that have true to regenerate Christians in them, they're preaching the gospel, they might disagree. They're secondary doctrines, but ones we need to hold uh, closely in order to maintain the harmony within our own church. Tertiary would be those doctrines that we can politely discuss. They're peripheral doctrines. They're, uh, we can discuss them, we can have spirited conversation about them without causing division. Without causing division. I'll have an example in a little bit. So we then, at Port St. Lucie Bible Church, we define uh, ourselves in our constitution. Contains doctrinal positions, especially of the primary and the secondary uh, sort there are declared beliefs as a church and uh, as a registered nonprofit organization that we are approved by the state it happens because of that we can't knowingly teach against our constitution we can't knowingly and purposefully do that if we do teach against our stated beliefs in this day and age it exposes us, opens us up to civil litigation. You ask, what happens when someone comes and they've been attending as a visitor here for a while and they say, well, you know, uh, will you do a gay marriage? And I'll turn to page three of our Constitution and I'll say, look at the definition of the family and, and of marriage. And we cannot do that. We do not do that. This is a private membership church. We hold to these, these things that define us as a church. And they, if they say, well, yeah, but I've been looking over pages 4, 5, and 6. And you don't hold tightly to any of that. Understand what I'm saying? Opens us up to litigation. You can't do that in this day and age. You have to be very, that's why we revised the Constitution a couple of years ago is to make sure that it clearly represented what we believe as a local congregation. And, and it, part of the reason of that is, uh, Gerald and I attended a workshop up at First Baptist Jacksonville. They said, you've got to get this in order. It's coming. It's coming. You can't teach against what your constitution declares um, without eventually running into trouble. Um, This paper describes what we believe doctrinally, how we function practically as a church. All desiring to become members need to affirm this document with a signature. You have to agree with us. You have to be in harmony with us to become a voting member of the church or to become a leader in the church. You have to be in harmony with it. Um, 
But I would ask, as you do that, as, as you look at these constitutions, as, as I hand these out, I'm going to stand up here and hand some out, especially if you're looking at coming in the class. Um, the orientation, that is, don't fill in between the lines. Don't read something and say, well, this must mean that. Come and ask. Come and ask, and I'd be glad to help you uh, learn how we apply some of these things. Don't assume. Don't assume and say, well, if they believe that, then I've just got to go elsewhere. Um... Christians in other denominations, other churches, they can differ on us on secondary and tertiary issues. We don't seek undue division. But instead, verse 37, we readily pardon. We extend grace. We show grace. That's why you can have John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul share the same pulpit at a conference because they show grace to one another, because they, they uh, embrace one another on the essentials. Verse 38, Give, and it will be given to you. They will reciprocate in your standard of judgment in good measure. In good measure. Our house better be clean, or they're going to come right back, and they're going to expose us. Well, you say you believe the Bible. You don't even do such and such. It's really amazing how quickly we will condemn others and not have our own house in order. As Christians, we shouldn't do that. Calvin, John Calvin refers to this self-righteous judgment, this judging, as a vice. He identifies it as a vice. That's, that's an immorality. And he writes, This vice is attended by some strange enjoyment... For there is hardly any person who is not tickled with the desire of inquiring into other people's faults. It's a vice. It's a vice. Is there a more godly attitude when judging? Is, is there a better way to do this? Verse, 30, verse 42 tells us there is. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out that is in your brother's eye. Work on yourself first. We need to cleanse our house of the sins that blind us. It's interesting here when you look at the, the speck or the log or the sawdust and the, and the plank, however your translation uh, represents that. It's interesting, they're of the same nature. They're, bo- they're both basically wood, Right? And how someone will will notice that there's a little speck of dust in your life, and they got this big old plank sticking out over here. Same same nature of sin. Probably part of the the reason that they're so offended is because they're the one offending, and probably in a greater way than you. It's interesting to make that observation. They're the same stuff, different levels of stuff. We need to purge our sins. We need to know with precision what we believe, what we stand for. Why, why do we need that? Is it so we can condemn with, with increasing intensity our brothers and sisters? Is that the reason we didn't need to know what we believe? Amplify the intensity of the, of the wrath of our tongue? No. No, that's not what this, this teaches. We are to know what we believe with precision so that we can see clearly, so we can see clearly who actually is a Christian brother. 
who is and who isn't. And so we're not deceived by false teachers. That's getting to the meat of this passage. Because, folks, the false teachers, they're out there. Trust me, they are out there. In fact, they're in here. You can trust me on that one, too. They're in here. They are. Talk about that in a minute. The primary intent of this passage is to identify false prophets and teachers. That's the warning here. Get the log out. That, that's just the prologue. All right? That, that's just the prologue. Don't get blinded by your own plank. Our vision has to be clear. Because deceivers, you need to be able to see well, because deceivers, well, they're very discreet at first. Very discreet at first. Matthew describes them as wolves in sheep's clothing, right? Wolves in sheep's clothing. They arrive looking like, smelling like, and bleeding like sheep. You tell my dad used to raise sheep on the farm? They look just like a Christian. And, And your pastors here, pastors and elders, we're always on the lookout for ravenous wolves. Always. Under the wool, they have two goals. Wolves want to confuse and they want to scatter. Confuse and scatter so that then they can devour. That's, that's what they want to do. That's their goal. They, they don't publicly announce themselves. They don't come in and announce themselves. But eventually, wolves will cast doubt on primary doctrines. They will doubt them privately because those are essential to becoming Christians. So they'll cast doubt on those. They will quietly question secondary doctrines. Why? Because that disrupts harmony among the flock, right? Then they're going to major in tertiary doctrines. The periphery stuff that they can speak somewhat openly about, oh, they're, go- they're going to major in those. They have more freedom in those, and, and they can discuss them more openly. Their goal, folks, uh, altogether is to draw away disciples after themselves. Draw away disciples after themselves. In Acts 20, verse 29, Paul warns the elders at Ephesus. We studied through 1 Timothy. Well, this all became so clear. He warned those elders at Ephesus, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Right? And he warns them, therefore be on alert. Be on alert. Division. They, they, they get a group. Wolves like to get a group divided unto themselves. They present themselves probably as the A-team. You know, we're a little bit step above everybody else. What does that do? Disunity already. You got Paul and Apollos and Cephas and Christ and Corinth. Everybody's baptized by some indifference and it was something to brag about, wasn't it? Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. Is Christ divided? No. No, not divided. Example of a tertiary doctrine. If you all are kind of wondering. Might be... Not a doctrine either. Tertiary belief. Who can do a baptism? Who can perform a baptism? You might go to some churches and they might say only 
ordained clergy perform the baptisms. I could become a member of a church like that if that's what their preference is and that's the way that they do things. I could. I could overlook that as a tertiary doctrine. Here, if you're a member in good standing or or if we know of your reputation and you want to do, uh, someone wants you to do their baptism, we don't stand in the way of that. We really don't want someone we've never met coming in and doing a baptism. You know, we'd like to know their reputation. We'd like them to be one of us. But Gerald and I normally do them. But, but we don't bring the hammer on that only ordained clergy. But I, I could go either way. It's a tertiary doctrine. We can disagree on that. Um, there are many like that. We, um, we had, this is quite some time ago, but important just to illustrate then what I was talking about because I saw Carol Thomas's eyes go big when we talk about uh, wolves and stuff in our midst. You never know where they're going to come out of. And... Uh, Quite some time ago, one gentleman was, uh, in a way, kind of drawing away some folks. Nothing official in the church. Nothing official that was public or anything that we'd recognize. And, and I kind of noticed it by some things that were said and other things. And, and uh, a young lady that was kind of near him came to me right before uh, Thanksgiving. Said, you know... Your church has been good to me, the teaching and everything. I, I'm, I'm certain of what I believe now, and I'd like to discuss having being baptized. And I said, well, that's great. I said, can we get through the holidays? I explained to her, you're not saved through splashing water on you or dunking you or whatever, right? You understand? Yeah, yeah, she understood that. Um, so could we get through the holidays? And then sometime after the first year, we're not, we'll announce it like we always do and say, is anybody else? We'll do one, we'll do 11, whatever it be. So she said, that's fine, that's fine. So a little bit after the first of the year, a few weeks passed, she missed a couple Sundays, other things, and, and she came in and I said, well, you know, would, uh, you talked about that baptism. Would you like to still do that? She goes, no, I took care of that. Okay, that's, that's, that's fine. What happened? No, no, she goes, I, I hope that's all, all right. I was over at such and such's house and told him what I'd talked to you about and, and that individual told me that I could be baptized right then and there at his house. You know, we can do that right here. You don't have to have that done at the church. Word got back to me later, and I'm like, could we have been involved? Could we have been part of that? I mean, if, if, that, if that person wanted to do it, if they're in good standing, they could do it here, and we could all benefit. And uh, it, it, was, it was disappointing to me. I'm like, but there were things going on around behind the scenes, because, because it's a way of affirming and professing your faith to, to, the, to the brethren, those whom you love and encouraging them uh, through your baptism, and it was kept in a small group backyard. That, that's what you run into. I, I didn't pounce. I didn't pounce. I received that. I go, no, if, if you're happy with that baptism, that's your baptism. That, that is fine. Uh, I prayed. I watched. I continued to examine the fruit. Um, ultimately, just about the time they, they decided to make a peaceable departure other things emerged the individual rejected the doctrine of original sin said there's no such thing as a sin nature professed all men and women are born sinless it's their environment that that causes them to sin and bad learning this was the error that was being taught on the side 
in the baptism that was being given, folks, um, that, that's what you run into. You see it. You don't know it until you experience it. Is it, a, is it an issue? Not, not a big deal. It's needless to know who it was. It's been a long period of time. That goes on. We see that. Is that bringing people together? Or is that separating people apart? That's separating, isn't it? We've talked to Gerald numerous times in the small groups, whether on Wednesday night here, or Ruth's group, or um, home groups, or what. It's always to bring people, to draw people in, and strengthen them in the unity and the harmony of the local body. That's the purpose. Not to separate out and have special baptisms of Apollo or Paul or um, Cephas. Um, We learn, Paul said to Ephesus, you'll know them by their fruits. You'll know them by the fruits. And we're watching, patiently watching. This exposes a common misperception of this passage concerning the fruits. Many passively interpret this passage as as giving a process, supplying a process of how to identify Christians. The -the off-the-cuff answer is, and, and I did a little survey here, this past week. The off-the-cuff answer is that the parable of the fruits teaches who we can recognize as, as uh, genuine Christians by the fruits of their good deeds. That's, that's the off-the-cuff answer. Yeah, yeah, that's how you know whether someone's a Christian or not is whether or not they do good deeds, right? Unfortunately, that's not what the parable of the fruits teaches here. From other passages, we know Christians will bear fruit. We know that as a fact. But this teaches how to recognize false teachers. They also produce fruit, which is scary. Take a look with me. Looking at verse 39, Jesus offers this as a dire warning. And Jesus also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they they not both fall into a pit? A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. The Pharisees are the blind men. They were the epitome of false teachers. And when the blind leads the blind, or allowed to lead the blind, I would add, they'll both stumble into a pit. Jesus is warning that we take strides to prevent false teachers from influencing new disciples in the church. Visitors to the church. False teachers will lead astray. And then they'll all fall in a pit. The teachers and then those they're teaching. An even stronger warning emerges in verse 40. It says a pupil is not above his teacher. But everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. That's obviously a truth both in the positive and the negative, right? When it's for the positive, becoming like your teacher is a good thing. But here Jesus is using it in the negative. In the negative. He warns his disciples in a doctrinal sense. Everyone will eventually look like their teacher. It's in the negative. And if you permit false teachers to groom your pupils, students, new disciples, the pupils are going to become to look just like those teachers. Left uncorrected, you're eventually going to have a whole church swarming with false teachers. 
the ESV Study Bible, which is a real good resource. The ESV Study Bible has a note on this verse saying, the kingdom community must guard against not only false prophets, but also false disciples. That's the spawn of the false prophets. Kingdom community here, I would add, it's not only the church, it, it's seminaries, it's, it's missions boards and missions organizations. Folks, it's the Boy Scouts. You've got to beware of who infiltrates your organization, especially on the church level. They're going to change things. They're going to spawn disciples. Next thing you know, you're not what that organization started out to be. In fact, your, your organization that started out on biblical foundations is now denying the very word of God. That's what can happen. Jesus warned his disciples over and over repeatedly, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the influence of the Pharisees. The, the leaven of the false teachers, that will invade your community, your kingdom community, your church. Entire denominations, folks, entire denominations in America that once held, held to a sound understanding of Scripture are now ruined because of the infiltration of the false teachers. Exactly what Christ was warning them against over and over and over again. I've told my story of, of my calling here. I'll share that again in membership orientation. Don't need to go into it now. I've never had so thorough an examination as when I came here. I'm telling you what. Was I offended by that? No. I was encouraged by that because that's biblical. That is biblical. Not offended by scrutiny. It's really the wolves who resist the scrutiny, right? They don't want to be checked. Does, it, does that mean that everyone who walks through the door is under scrutiny, under a microscope? No, folks. We dispense, you've been here any length of time, we dispense grace by the truckload. Grace by the truckload. Um, but Jesus says the use of great scrutiny when it becomes to recognizing false teachers is important. And we're warned personally, let, let not many of you become teachers, for you will incur a stricter judgment, right? Stricter judgment. Does that, is James there suggesting that, that not many of us become teachers? Not at all. Not at all. He, he's simply suggesting we carefully weigh the responsibility of teaching others. The message, if you've heard of that, the Message Bible, it's a paraphrase. I don't use it very often. I think it's maybe the first time that I've ever quoted it. But I like the way it sheds meaning here in a paraphrase of James 3.1. It reads, Don't be in any rush to become a teacher, my friends. Teaching is a highly responsible work. Teachers are held to the strictest standards and none of us is perfectly qualified. Isn't that good? It's not an endorsement of the Message Bible, but I like the quote. I've visited churches where the teaching roles are passed to any warm body that's willing to put in the time. Because it takes time to put a lesson together. Just pass it along. Folks, availability is not how you qualify or disqualify a teacher. It's not through availability. How do we qualify? How do we disqualify? Well, first we get that log out. We extract that log out of our own eyes so we can see. And we watch for fruit. We watch for the fruit. Verse 43. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand a bad tree which produces good fruit. 
For each tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. Jesus is like the teacher and the pupils. When we, we learn about that, they're going to become uh, like their teacher. Trees reproduce according to their kind too, right? They don't reproduce contrary to their kind. So, so before they, they go to seed in your congregation, Jesus is saying, inspect the fruit of the teachers. Does that mean you inspect what kind of disciples that they've made? No, that's too late. It's before they make the disciples, before the damage is already done, before they've created another thorn bush. What fruit then is Jesus talking about? Is it good deeds? As we heard earlier. No. You don't identify a good teacher by good deeds. There are devoted Mormons folks who spend more time in the soup line handing out meals than any of us do. They have to. Their doctrine says that by good works is how they enter into heaven. They have to do that. But their good works, they simply mask the false doctrine. They're denials of the truths about Christ. They're doing good things, but as teachers, they're leading their pupils into the pit of hell. It's a false church. You, You can't even identify a genuine Christian by good deeds. much less disqualify or qualify a teacher. There there are plenty of false Christians out there doing all kinds of good deeds, spending week after week uh, in soup kitchens, doing good things, good things. They embrace false doctrine, uh, and and they think the reason they're getting to heaven is because they're serving in in a soup kitchen. That's their method of getting to heaven is the works, not by the grace of God. So you can't see for sure just by deeds. The advisement from Jesus is we'll know them by their fruits. It's not a command to inspect for their good works, but to inspect for their good words. Look with me at verse 44. Jesus says, For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. You can't get good fruit from a briar bush. Verse 45, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. See that? Where does the fruit that we inspect come from? The mouth comes from the mouth it's by what they say what do we weigh his works no we weigh his words because the words are a reflection of the heart good works are necessary folks but they're not conclusive they're inconclusive even the false churches do good deeds we weigh the words that originate from the heart. When it comes to false teachers who want to spawn offspring, we will know what kind of tree he or she is by the fruit of their words. The doctrine that they teach, the things that they say, eventually reveal the heart of a man. John Martin, a Dallas seminary professor, writes, quote, Jesus pointed out that a man's words will eventually tell what kind of man he is. 
Just as people know the kind of tree by the fruit it bears, so people know from what a person says whether he is righteous or not. In, the case, in this case, fruit stands for what is said, not what is done. Out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Unquote. That's good. John Calvin writes in his commentary on this passage, he says, quote, Believers ought to examine carefully what kind of doctrine is taught by those who profess to be servants of God. Titles are of little value till a speaker gives actual evidence that he is sent by God. Got to watch what's taught. Got to watch what's said. Have you ever come to some, uh, had someone come up to you and, and, and profess being a Christian? Um, you, you get the sense that they might be and, and they're just on fire for Jesus. Then find out a few months later that they insist that Jesus is actually Michael the Archangel. <laughs> Happened here, didn't it? They never crept into a leadership position, though they tried. They tried. Um, thinking about a tree. Does it bear its fruit overnight? No. Is this something that we can tell in a week? No. It appears over an entire season, doesn't it? Fruit matures through a season. Even during the cold of winter, if any of you are fanatics on stuff like that, even during the cold of of winter, the number of hours in the freeze zone determines for a tree uh, how much, what quality, and what quantity, and at what time the tree is going to give fruit. The entire season determines what time they will give fruit and, uh, and when. Patience, folks. Patience. And keep on waiting. You will know them by their fruits. You will know them by their fruits. How can we apply this scripture? Folks, we can start by being graceful. Extend grace, mercy, love. Embrace those who are like us. Um, examine ourselves first. Before we start throwing, chucking those spears. Examine ourselves. That's the first thing. I don't think anyone, um, I can speak for myself, I don't think any of us here have, uh, don't have something that can be cleaned up before we judge others. Doctrinally, our Constitution is a great tool. Again, I'm going to be up here as you leave. Um, you should be familiar with it. Visitor or going to the class orientation or member, you should be familiar with our Constitution. In a doctrinal sense, everything taught at this church has to conform to this. This conforms to the early church creeds, the historic creeds that were given for this very same reason, folks, as guideposts to discern what is and what is not um, uh, true from the Bible. It was, those creeds were to identify false teachers. Each of them up till 500 AD, you got the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, Athanasian Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed. Most of you have heard these over and over again. The church in each one of those situations was identifying a heresy, a bona fide one. And uh, they're good guideposts. Um, they're, they're each in reaction to a heresy, an emerging heresy. If you hear anything in the, from this pulpit, from a small group, from anywhere, Sunday school, elsewhere, that doesn't conform, we want to know about it. We'd like to talk about it. Is this flawless? No, it's written by man. But it was prayerfully put together, carefully put together after much prayer and review. We believe this accurately represents 
uh, what is taught throughout the Bible and Scripture. If we can be convinced otherwise, there is a process. Not an easy one, but there is a process to change it. As Luther said at the Imperial Diet of Worms, unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the Word of God and I, can, uh, I cannot and I will not recant. I can do no other. All right? I'll be up here afterwards. Let's pray. Father.